The devaluing of money by central banks is the greatest subsidy and incentive for excessive financialization, forcing the average person to put all of their savings and all of their risk-free assets into banks and financial instruments that do have risk and that otherwise would not even be needed, allowing the banking and finance sector to grow to an order of magnitude greater than any natural size would allow it. The global financial system is at the precipice of a phenomenal 50-year bubble. Bitcoin is the pin. You are listening to Bitcoin Audible, and this is a Guy's Take episode. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. We've got a Guy's Take episode today. Um, Probably some good prerequisites for this episode uh, are uh, the use of knowledge in society by Hayek, the recent fraying of the petrodollar system by Lynn Alden, and then, of course, uh, the dominant subject of today's Guy's Take Uh, The gradually then suddenly number 17 by Parker Lewis, Bitcoin is the great definancialization. Like, I don't think it'll be all that hard to follow, but uh, I think you should listen to those anyway. (laughs) A real quick thanks to our uh, three great sponsors. We have got the Hexa mobile wallet for uh, holding your own keys on your mobile device. Uh, And actually, the couple of recent updates to Hexa have been amazing, and they are actually right on the verge of coming out of beta. So that's really exciting. That's H-E-X-A. Then, of course, the Bitbox O2 uh, hardware wallet. Simple, reliable, open source. It just it doesn't get any cleaner and easier than Bitbox. And lastly, Level.co, L-V-L, is a full Bitcoin mobile banking suite. You get an account with ACH, wire transfer, direct deposit, a debit card, The whole package, plus it is an exchange with no trading fees. Convert between currencies at spot price. And that is Level.co. And a huge thank you to all of our sponsors and, of course, our patrons to Bitcoin Audible. And uh, you can check all of those out at GuySwanSWANN.com. So, Again, this is largely a follow-up to Bitcoin is the great definancialization because I just could not resist really digging into that piece. Um, it is just absolutely full of some really amazing, uh, uh, just kind of a logical thought process on how to, how to see where we got to where we are today. Um, how did we become so over-financialized? You know, it was not... It was not a normal thing for someone to be forced to put all of their money into the stock market. And that like after you got home at the end of the day, like working and taking risk and, you know, investing all of your time into some skill or to um, some productive activity that you hope the world is going to continue to value and that you hope will be there tomorrow because of the previous investment and the risk you have already taken that you can't just hold your money. If you hold it, you just, you just lose it. 
it's taken from you. And not in a natural way, in a perfectly unnatural way, in a fully artificial way that the government has induced that you are going to lose your savings if you just hold it in the one asset that is specifically there to store value. That is, that's what makes an economy work. That's how you get efficiency, is the ability to actually store value somewhere across time and get to keep the value that you have produced in the past. Parker Lewis had a really good way of putting it in the piece, actually, is that the difference, your savings, is the difference between how much you have produced, how much value you have made in the world, versus how much you have consumed. To devalue that savings is to rob the person that is funding everything twice. It's to first rob them of the production that they actually put into the economy, because that's what they did. They went out and they did a job and they produced for other people, and then they try to save that value, and then they get robbed again, saving the value of, of being able to actually keep the value for later so that they can actually consume what they produced in the world. And at the exact same time, the devaluing of money by central banks is the greatest subsidy and incentive for excessive financialization, forcing the average person to put all of their savings and all of their risk-free assets into banks and financial instruments that do have risk and that otherwise would not even be needed, allowing the banking and finance sector to grow to an order of magnitude greater than any natural size would allow it. The global financial system is at the precipice of a phenomenal 50-year bubble. Bitcoin is the pin. And that is what we are getting into today. So one of the coolest things, or one of the best, I think, framings that Parker Lewis really laid out, that's so hard to, um, it, it, it's not the default assumption, you know? Like, uh, the perception is that, like, after you have savings, you must do something with it. The Keynesian theory that, oh, like, you know, we have to, we have to devalue your savings so that you'll actually invest it. When that's ex it com completely ignores the more fundamental question is how did the savings get there? The savings got there after investment, after taking a risk, after taking one of the biggest risks in your life of figuring out what the hell you're going to do and how, how many years you're going to learn some specific skill or dedicate to experience and building up a reputation and a history in some specific career or job or function or, you know, become an entrepreneur and actually come up with some unique idea and risk everything you have on it. That's when the risk is taken. That's the investment. It's already been done. Savings is the reward from that. And to force someone to the idea that, oh, they're hoarding money and that's taking away from the economy, they already, they don't owe the economy anything. They already did it all. They already put the risk in. They already made the, pro the productive goods they already did something for everyone else. You're stealing their right to actually get something out of it. That's just messed up. But it was really cool framing that he put in because that is something that's totally lost from the discussion. You know, like it never comes back to that. It's like, why? Why the hell should they have to put it in a bank and give it to somebody else? And it is. It's just a subsidy for the banks. It, it's... It's exactly what, I mean, imagine, think of a bank or financial institution that's got all these instruments that, doesn't, that don't sell because they aren't providing real value to somebody, 
that um that they can't get people to put their money in these other institutions or in these financial instruments or into a bank account because the money just works and the money actually protects them well then that means they're not producing anything of value so okay i'm sorry they shouldn't be able to force people into an instrument or a product or to give them their money if they are not actually producing them any value but to then steal the money through savings to or steal the money in savings to devalue the currency to make it bleed 2%, 5%, 10% a year, which actually Parker Lewis, you know, talks about like just the regular CPI, um, which is a horrible, horrible index. Again, I've, I've probably mentioned it a million times, but the CHAP Wood Index, C-H-A-P, they have a really good breakdown of why the CPI is terrible um, and why it is that they've constantly altered the CPI, um, which actually the budget, the, the all of the... Um, healthcare, uh, all the the benefits essentially through government are based on the CPI. So if uh, the actual inflation rate is 10%, 15%, whatever it is, um, but you can make it go down to 2%, uh, you can save hundreds of billions of dollars. And that's exactly what they've done. And they continue to modify it, twist it, and exclude critical things um, uh, for years and years. It's like every decade, they just do it again and again and again. And in doing so, the CPI has become a completely useless number. Um, and uh, um, it's, it's literally just a metric of how much government needs to save. Uh, and, but the Chapwood Index basically replaces this with a system that's not so dissimilar from, uh, I mean, just about as simple as it gets. The top 500 products uh, that people have to buy um, and that do buy all the time and uh, their prices in the like top 100 cities or something in the U.S., which is the majority of the population. And it's just crowdsourced. It's just they just get all this information. They put it together. And if you look at it, the the inflation rate is clearly nothing like the CPI. It's 10 percent a year. Uh, that's a, that's probably that's probably an average. And in 2020, it's going to be 20. Um, it's going to be over 20, probably. In fact, a lot of cities have already seen like 13% just in the first half of 2020. But that's how much we are getting robbed. So Parker Lewis actually has an example of, uh, you know, 2% inflation over what was it, like a 10-year and 20-year period that it's like 20% and then 35% in total devaluation. Yeah, well, that's it's way, way worse than that. So devaluing that, doing that amount of damage to savings every single year is an unbelievable subsidy for the financial sector. Because now all these instruments that they wanted to sell, all these accounts that they couldn't get people to open, now are there by default. It's like, ha ha, now, now we've got customers. What they do is they get built-in customers. And I, and I truly think that um, it's a case of aligned incentives. It helps the government uh, you know, rob people without them knowing. It helps the financial sector, which has always had the government by the nuts. I mean, they're basically the same thing. The government doesn't have control um, or <laughs> vice versa, whichever way you want to say it. If they don't have the master key to the financial system, well, then the government is restricted in what it can do. And obviously, no one likes that. People like power. People like control. People like to do the things that they want to do. And thus, the incentives are at odds with the people. 
The financial system wants customers. The government wants to do whatever the hell it wants. And uh, we can rob everybody and they won't have a clue. And we'll teach economics that's idiotic, but, you know, defends it and makes it sound like it's important. But they're forcing people into or at least creating an environment. Well, I don't know. It's hard to say whether it's forced because they're being stolen from. They're essentially being given no alternative to actually keep their value. Every avenue is shut down as quickly as possible. And this is why Bitcoin, the core idea of Bitcoin is to make it government proof, is to make it impossible to shut down because the government will shut it down. The banks will lobby to have it shut down. The central banks will lobby. The government will. The unions will. It doesn't matter. Whatever it is, everybody's purchasing power in the quote-unquote regime is put in question by a uh, by an asset like bitcoin all of the avenues they had to that they could shut down to make sure that no one had an alternative now there is an avenue in which they cannot shut down that is a clear and highly available alternative and that is a threat if someone tells you otherwise then they just don't understand it yet so Again, back to the idea real quick, um, because Parker had a really good quote on this in the piece, on how the risk is actually taken beforehand, that the savings is the reward, is the result of the risk and the investment that has been made to better the economy. So, quote, risk comes in the form of investing time and energy in some pursuit that others value and must continue to value in order to be paid, and continue to be paid. It starts with education, training, and ultimately perfecting a craft over time that others value, end quote. So when someone asks why Bitcoin has value, you know, that everybody could just instantly decide it's not worth anything. Understand that this is the case for everything. Value is subjective. We make our whole lives on learning skills that other people value and they could instantly decide that a there is a better alternative or b it's just not worth anything to them anymore and destroy all of the hard work we have done one person could value you know someone's need to drive long hours in a truck and you know maneuver big complicated machinery and another person could value engineering and robotic systems and then one day the one building engineering and robotic systems builds a truck that uh, drives by itself. The driver has lost all the investment they have made, the history, the reputation they built, the career and experience, the skills, all of it. They have taken a massive risk and that, that reward has run dry. This is the nature of value. It is all subjective as to what our goals are and what can fulfill those goals. Everything can lose value if it's Use, if its ability to fulfill some human goal is either replaced or taken away, it can go to zero, period. Now, the bubble in our financial system, the, the bloat, the financial instruments, um, he, he makes an interesting point in this, that they actually do provide value, but they provide unnatural value. So... Um, an analogy, so these things are to fix. Like the reason we have all these 401ks and IRAs and we've got to invest in mutual funds and CDCs and CDOs and just these huge packages of 
uh, the basket of like 800 goods. Well, that is what money is. It is a basket of all the goods in the economy. Like to say that like something backed, some instrument backed by 10 goods is better than money um, or makes a better money is to completely misunderstand what money is. Money is essentially a form of a promise, a promise of redemption from the people who accept the money, which money is backed by all of the goods in the economy. That's what makes it the money of the economy. It's not backed by like 10 things or one thing or a few things. It's backed by everything. That's what gives it the monetary premium because it is the most secure promise for the redemption of all those other goods. So it, it shows or it represents that all of these things get monetary premiums. These financial instruments get monetary premiums and now they have to reinvent money by creating a basket of 20 commodities and put it into some new instrument and shove it into somebody's 401k. Well, that's because, that's explicitly because money has failed to do that very thing, which is what money does. They're trying to recreate a problem that naturally should not exist. So an analogy would be like, imagine like on your street, uh, you know, to get out of your, get out of your house, get from get to get from your house to your car. You know, usually you just, you know, have a little sidewalk. You just step out, down some stairs, go straight to your car, right? Um, and it would make no sense to put anything in your way. The devaluing of money um, is kind of like putting an obstacle course there. So now you have to, you know, climb over this wall and, you know, cross this rope bridge. And uh, you just, you have to do all of this psychotic stuff. You, you have to work incredibly hard just to get from your house to your car so that you can travel somewhere. And it doesn't make any sense. There's no reason to have it. You don't want it there. But somebody has forced that construction, the construction of that obstacle course, and you have to go through it. Now, those financial instruments, the job then of the financial sector and these banking instruments and all of these other, this huge bloated industry is that now there is a massive market for uh, simplifying or automating a way to get through an obstacle course. It's like there would be no market for that otherwise. Like I would have no reason to pay somebody to, you know, program something to, you know, get me through some ridiculous obstacle course. But now it makes sense for me to spend $500, $600 to put it in, uh, you know, somebody else's hands so that they can solve my very simple problem to, of getting me from my house to my car. So it's a subsidy for A, the people who build uh, the, the obstacle courses and B, the people who program solutions to the obstacle courses to massive markets that literally wouldn't exist otherwise. That is basically our financial system. That is our global financial system right now is a massive bloated industry of instruments to solve a problem that doesn't naturally exist. It has been artificially created by the central banks of the world. And then we have been forced into funding a massive industry at 10x, 50x its actual size for solving a problem that should not exist. And that's not the only problem with it. The other problem is that our money is based on debt. I mean, this is, this is kind of uh, this is kind of part of why the obstacle course is there is how that devaluing actually occurs. But there is a great, it's, a, it's super dense. Um, so um, we'll, we'll break it down uh, quite a bit because this is really hard to, um, 
surprisingly difficult for people to wrap their heads around when they first start thinking about it because you get this idea that, oh, as long as you have the money, uh, well, then that means that you can go do a thing or you can build a house or you can whatever it is. We think of money as the actual good rather than a proxy for the goods in society. So if somebody actually prints money out of thin air or creates debt, creates money as debt, we fail to see, because it's spread over such a huge pool of resources, we fail to see that that doesn't actually correspond to real resources. So uh, let me hit the quote real quick. Uh, Parker says, Recognize that 100% of all future investment and consumption, for that matter, comes from savings. Manipulating monetary incentives and specifically creating a disincentive to save merely serves to distort the timing and terms of future investment, end quote. So the thing I want to stress the most here is that all investment and consumption must come from savings. And the very nature of the manipulation they have done is to destroy savings in the short term to force it into overinvestment and overconsumption so that it looks like a boost uh, in the short term, but in the long term, we have no savings left. So it's actually destructive to the very cause they claim they are trying to prop up. There's way more to unpack in this one, um, but I've got to get some water. Um, let's take a quick break, actually, right here. This is a good time, and uh, we will come right back. Level.co, and that's LVL.co, so drop the vowels. These guys are bringing something amazing to the Bitcoin space. This is the first free exchange and banking services in North America. The Level mobile app lets you buy and sell Bitcoin without any trading fees or hidden spreads. So the free version gets you free Bitcoin trading, a hosted wallet, a FDIC insured checking account, wires, checks, and direct deposit, and uh, you can purchase for $10 a MasterCard debit card. Get the premium for just $9 a month and you have access to an autopilot trading bot, 30% off of some of the other transaction fees, chat with a dedicated private banker, and a Metal World Debit MasterCard. And the best thing about the Metal card, there is no fee nor a spread to spend cash from Bitcoin on the card. It is available in 28 states right now, and they expect to be uh, available to 94% of the U.S. population by the end of 2021, with the exception of, sorry, everybody in New York. But this is an incredible new service, a full-on suite of Bitcoin banking services, and you should definitely check it out today at lvl.co. So again, um, uh, mean that all, all, 100% of future investment and consumption must come from savings. There is no investment that cannot come from today's surplus, period. And this is axiomatic. This is not something that like all money does, all adding money to the equation does is confuse it because people think money is what they need when that is not what they need. They need the resources that money can buy. If I don't have wood, I cannot build a house, which means the productive investment and savings of lumber had to come before the investment to build the house. I cannot build a house today with a promise 
that someone else will make wood tomorrow. Because until I have the wood, none of the building can get done. I'm waiting for someone to fulfill their promise of making the savings so that I can do the, the actual investment in the house, in the new product, in the new good on the economy. Yet that is exactly what we have attempted to do in our current monetary system. We have replaced actual goods with promises for goods in the future. Debt. And then we have reneged on these debts over and over again. Shocking that this has somehow created bubbles where we have to cancel trillions of dollars in projects and economic activity in these sudden waves of firing millions of people and massive uh, credit defaults and instability across the entire financial system. Shocker that when we base money off of promises of having shit in the future, that it doesn't sustain the economic activity that that then induces. Gasp. It's almost like if you thought about it for a fucking second, it would make sense. And the very nature of the system, the fact that it devalues savings, destroys the very thing we need so that we can continue to make investments, so that we can uh, actually consume in the future. The, the trick of the petrodollar system is that we offload it. The reason it's actually been able, we've been able to sustain it for so long is that we've exported it. We've dumped it on India and China and Russia and the European Union. Everybody who has to hold our dollars, we get their resources when our local resources turn out to not fulfill the bill. So rather than us not being able to redeem on that promise, and that's how you can go for 50 years and not realize that this is a sham, is that, well, the Americans are supposed to fulfill their own debts, right? Like, if, uh, if I have promised to someone else to provide wood so that they can build a house, um, I'm the one who, is, who should have to provide the wood. Uh, but the thing is, is that the way, because we have a global reserve currency, is we get to offload that because then... Uh, everybody else in the world needs to hold those promises, needs to buy those promises from us so that they can buy oil. It's a really clever system. Um, and it allows us to redeem the resources we don't have from everywhere else in the world. We get to buy them from China. We get to buy them from India. We get to buy them from uh, the EU. And they continue to accept them because they can't keep the lights on otherwise. Uh, I, again, uh, highly, highly highly recommend the fraying of the petrodollar system by Lynn Alden. It is unbelievably dense. I've um, read it myself like multiple times just going through and recording it, uh, and I've already listened to it again, and I've had number, a number of people just rave about how incredible that piece is, and it really is. It's just unbelievable fire talking about how the petrodollar system came about, what it is, um, how it operates, why it has led to such a huge imbalance, how it stopped working for the U.S. and the U.S. economy and is now being used against us, and why it basically needs to die. All of which I basically agree with. <laughs> but in doing so, in, in having all this, our incentive to save and the reward from savings, the very, the very idea that we can just keep value that we've already produced, is destroyed. And therefore the possibility of future investment. We dump investment now, like the Keynesian idea is actually right, that, oh, if we devalue savings, people will invest it. But they will invest all of the surplus that we have, and we will run out of resources to invest. 
The idea is we want a market. We want actual prices. We want intelligent investment. What it does is it induces us to do stupid investments, to invest in anything that gives any kind of return so that we don't lose money. Instead of hunting for something actually valuable, instead of waiting until something comes along that is really meaningful, that is a significant investment, that seems like a really good long-term project that might hugely benefit society, we just dump it into the first instrument that says, here's 2%, here's 3%. And that's how you get billion-dollar companies that don't even turn a profit because we're just desperate to not have the money lose value. All of these things that should not have a monetary premium develop a monetary premium. And instead of having just a, a natural proper incentive to save money, the central banks are inducing a cycle of risk-taking on top of risk-taking. Like just to, just to keep the rewards from the massive risks you've already taken, you have to take more risk. And then all of this gets put into financial assets, get, gets pushed into the financial system, which then is bloated and they just start thinking that they're the most important things in the world. There's actually a chart that um, uh, is uh, in this piece uh, that I did not actually detail out in the reading. Um, uh, but uh, it shows the sector, the, the financial system itself, like the financial and banking sector as a percent of GDP, like how big is it in relation to everything else? And if you know everything's growing, you, you would relatively think um, that the industries, unless something uh, specifically declined somewhere else and something is replacing it, that industries would roughly stay, you know, a, a decent, particularly finance, would stay roughly the same size of the whole uh, as it always is because it's there just to supposedly protect money and uh, um, facilitate investing. But instead, it has more than doubled over a period of like 40 years. And it's what led to the, I mean, that's where the hamster wheel analogy comes in. And, you know, the idea that we feel like we're running and not going anywhere. Um, and Parker Lewis just hits the nail on the head there is just that this is the hamster wheel. Is feeling like just to keep what you already, the, the reward from the risk and massive investment you already took, you then have to take a new risk and make a new investment. And this is a, it's, it's a choice between losing it or taking a new risk. Um, and this is a, uh, as he says, as he refers to it, a manufactured dilemma. Um, in fact, uh, I think this is the, I think this is the quote that I used um, at the, uh, at the beginning, uh, but it's just so good. So I'm going to read it again. Central banks have created this false dilemma. The greatest trick that central banks ever pulled was convincing the world that individuals must perpetually take risk just to preserve value already created and saved. It is insane, and the only practical solution is to find a better form of money, which eliminates the negative asymmetry inherent to systemic currency debasement. That is basically the entire article. <laughs> that's, that's the whole thing in like two sentences. And, you know, this is actually uh, also why I think the tokenization of everything uh, is actually misguided. Um, I think we will tokenize less things. I think that's kind of the leftover mentality from this over-financialized world is that, oh, we're going to tokenize everything and everything's going to be a financial instrument is, no, I think 
this is the bloated issue. This is the the cultural or the idea of like, oh, we think we're creating value in doing all of these things, which is just a result of this this uh, industry propped up simply because we don't have a safe place to put money. So we had this massively subsidized need to put our money into all of these tokenized financial instruments to buy hundreds of thousands of other goods and uh, CLOs and synthetic CDSs and bonds and ETFs and uh, equity ETFs, all the crazy stuff, mortgage-backed securities, God forbid. We needed to have all of these things tokenized because there was nowhere else to store value. There was no safe place to put it. When you create a safe place to put value, when you bring back sound money, those things fall away. I think Bitcoin will actually realign incentives and kill a lot of this tokenization rather than uh, make it because, you know, it's simpler because there's a techno the easy technology that we can use to then tokenize things. I still think it will be less. I think what will bring us back to stable and thoughtful investing. People won't care to hold a bunch of tokens to store value. They will have sound money. They will only do it if they are, at, are actively investing and partic participating in that industry or trying to forward some idea or entrepreneur or business enterprise. And that will be fewer people, not more people on the whole. I think Bitcoin will actually, and this is something that, you know, Bitcoin maximalists have talked about quite a bit. Like John Vallis talks about this a lot and, uh, and Marty Bent actually. Like a bunch of people have like really gotten together and talked about like what it means, like what it changes in you after you begin to really see Bitcoin as money and your frame of reference, uh, how you see or value wasting money like on things like like the things that you realize that you don't really need and that you could just get rid of or that you could sell and stack a few sats with. There's, I think there's going to be this huge shift back to minimalism, to savings, back to back to the basics. Um, and this will occur during a massive popping of this financialization bubble that we've been in the midst of for 50 years. And it will obliterate so many people and their livelihoods that it will steer them away from it forever. Like, I don't think, like, so many people who have bought into all of these financial instruments, I think, will get burned, like, really, really wrecked. And it's like people who just get into crypto or whatever and they, by Ripple, and then two days later, the SEC hits them with a lawsuit, and Ripple plummets like 80%, um, and, you know, those people don't ever want to touch crypto ever again, uh, and I think, I don't think there will be a swing back. I think there will be a massive uh, collapse in the bubble, and B uh, Bitcoin will pop it. Bitcoin is the pin that will pop this thing, and uh, people will just be so scared to go back they will see it as such a risky, volatile, messy thing that I can't believe we ever did this. Um, none of it will look safe anymore. Uh, I think it's increasingly the case already, uh, but it's only going to get worse as, as things move forward. And when Bitcoin shows itself to be sound money, to be that safe, secure, hard asset to keep money in, to keep rewards in, uh, the rewards from the risks that you are already taking in life. You know, life is hard enough to not destroy people's money, you know? It's not like, it's not like it was really easy and then uh, now we have to figure out how to make a little bit more money. Like, all of it's hard. All of it's really hard. And then they make this, uh, this 
theft. They put this theft, this poison on top of what is already incredibly difficult just so that they can do what they want to do, so that they can enact their vision of the world at our expense. Bitcoin is how you opt out of that. And I think it will be the case for everyone that it will be the only escape valve. Like, like Parker said, you know, it's a false dilemma that now is no longer a dilemma. Now there is an avenue out. And as soon as you see it, you won't sell it for a mutual fund when the smoke clears. I'm never going back, you know, like as long as Bitcoin is alive and Bitcoin continues to be what Bitcoin is, I'm, I'm not touching any of that shit. And the craziest thing is that at the end of the day, this will do the exact thing that the, the failed Keynesian theories are trying, or at least state that they're trying to get done, is that it will induce more investment. And, uh, and, and that's really kind of the, towards the end, his, uh, Parker really hits this really well, is that you know all, in, all consumption and investment comes from savings, and, uh, but they've destroyed the incentive to save in order to prop up investment and consumption in the short term. But what it does is it obliterates, it obliterates investment and consumption in the long term. And even worse, misaligns the investments and consumption of today. It gets people to consume stupid things because they just need to rush out and consume. That, that constant, every single time they make a decision, the knowledge and the, the fact that there is no need to trade off or think about, oh, but my savings might actually be worth something in the future. The fact that that is not there means that they're necessarily just trying to find any piece of plastic crap that they can put their money in uh, that will do something for them. And it leads to this, un it leads to consumerist culture. It leads to buy now and think about it later. Uh, it, it leads to stupid investments. It leads to people just blindly putting things into financial instruments that they know nothing about. Just because they're like, oh, well, somebody said I can get 3% with this and it worked last year. I mean, I bet, I bet everybody you know is invested in some 401k or some set of stocks or mutual fund or uh, uh, ETF or something. But I bet you 99% of them couldn't tell you what. Like if they're in a mutual fund, they couldn't tell you what is in that mutual fund. They might have some very vague idea. Um, it's like, oh, it's tech stuff or something. But they cannot tell you like, you know, they could tell you the house about the house that they are buying. But bringing back the incentive to save, bringing back the reward from having excess capital for running a surplus and keeping it available is exactly what allows massive, intelligent, thoughtful investment to occur in the future. Without that savings, we can't invest. So if we force everyone to dump everything they have today, all we do is eliminate investment in the future. So they get the numbers, the, the Keynesians get the numbers they're looking for for like two years and then everything slowly starts to fall apart. Savings is the only thing we can invest with. If we disincentivize that, we just empty all the coffers we need for investing in the future. And then even worse, we start going into debt. And that means we start pulling surplus from China, from India, from all the other developing nations, and we dump our inflation onto them 
uh, with, you know, because we're already in debt more than we produce. We take, we take their surplus and replace it with our IOUs that we already couldn't pay ourselves. Then we move to the next one and we do it again. We stack debt on top of debt on top of debt, just waiting for the day when we realize that we have now started more projects. We have uh, done all of this false economic activity. And, you know, back to the house analogy, there's no wood. There's nothing left. We've pushed the promises as far as they can possibly stretch. And there's nothing we can do but say, I'm sorry, we can't do it. And then there's a massive, massive crash. And honestly, the sooner that comes, the better. Because the longer we wait, the worse it gets. It's all, all the bad has already been done. The boom cycle in the, the dollar debt, uh, the dollar debt cycle, is where the damage is done, is where the misalignment is done, is where all of the actual surplus and actual savings is wasted, is put into uh, risky assets that don't actually main, can't actually maintain their value or only do so because the next guy's debt is then pushed in behind it. It's a hot potato. It's a, it's a greater fool. The whole thing is a greater fool theory, which is hilarious. These are all the things that people say about Bitcoin, and Bitcoin is exactly the opposite. So I guess it doesn't make, uh, it's not super surprising that someone who comes from that and thinks that that's legitimate and or just doesn't even understand how it works think that Bitcoin is the problem uh, when they are participating in the greatest Ponzi scheme ever. They are, in, uh, they are in the midst of the greatest financial bubble that has ever existed. And so if that's their barometer for legitimate and working, well, of course, Bitcoin looks crazy. And that's because Bitcoin is the opposite. That's because Bitcoin actually works. It is actually sound money. It is actually in balance. It has real prices and a real market. Money is just a tool. It is just a tool to coordinate uh, economic valuations and activity so that we can make the things and do the things that people actually value and need. Of course, there will be consumption. Of course, there will be investment. Um, and that's another thing that Parker Lewis says is that there is high time preference and there is low time preference, but there is always positive time preference. And what that means is that um, high time preference means that you value today way over the future. Low time preference is you value the future over today. But the point is, is that you value the consumption and the use of resources at some point over not doing so. The future is necessarily uncertain. We don't know. And we all know that we're going to run out of time. Maybe I have plans for five years from now. Maybe none of those plans matter in five years. I have no idea. The future is not known. Therefore, I always have a propensity to want to consume or make an investment today because I am taking on yet another however minor risk by waiting until tomorrow when I don't know what's going to happen. We are dis predisposed to value the present over the future at all times in some form or fashion. There is, you do not have to incentivize people to consume. People must consume to survive. The idea that we have a problem that people don't want things 
is hilariously stupid. It's the worst of economic excuses. That's the one thing that you don't have to do. People always want shit. The question is, do they have any incentive whatsoever to be conservative at all, to not immediately go out and buy what they want? Do they have an incentive to actually save and be intelligent and thoughtful about where their resources go? That's the thing that we actually have to worry about because in a lot of cases, they probably just don't. Thank God for sound money because otherwise it would be a mess. Well, it is, obviously, as we see. But this is why... This is why it's really hard to be not insanely bullish on Bitcoin. Because Bitcoin will first start to, the value that bleeds into it, um, and what we're seeing right now is the value that um, is propping up the monetary premium on these financial instruments. But it's going to continue to take from more financial assets. And even if, I think the biggest market that's going to be hit that people are not expecting and, um, and that very few people really talk about is treasury bonds. Treasury bonds is what, a hundred trillion dollar market or something stupid like that? Like that's how you keep reserves today. Those are reserves all around the world. The treasury bond market is going to be obliterated. And even if Bitcoin just hits, I mean like, a treasury bond at 2%, 3% yield or whatever is still terrible in comparison to sound, actual sound money that's being monetized. Um, so Bitcoin makes any kind of keeping up with CPI laughable. Like it's going to beat it every single time. And it will do so with far less risk than the risk of default in some country or some, you know, debt bubble that every country is constantly going through. Is as shaky as and instable as our financial system is, Bitcoin's going to be an easy bet as the Lindy effect really kind of takes hold and this thing's been around for 15, 20 years without dying. But even if, even if it just takes over the negative yielding sovereign debt, think about that. $17 trillion is negative yielding, is guaranteed loss on top of the loss of inflation. Who in their right mind, while Bitcoin exists and while they recognize that it's actually a legitimate alternative, would possibly take a guaranteed loss on top of a guaranteed loss instead of investing in Bitcoin. That's the easiest bet. And that alone is $17 trillion. And that's not, that's not a $17 trillion market cap in Bitcoin that we're talking about. We're talking about $17 trillion flowing into Bitcoin. Just $17 trillion alone already basically puts us at a million dollars a coin. That's about, that's about where it is. It's somewhere between 800 and a million. Um, but uh, that's if you start accounting for coins that are lost and uh, you know, holders are not just going to go and sell it all. $17 trillion uh, in market cap is basically a million dollars of Bitcoin. But $17 trillion flooding into the Bitcoin markets is far more than that, in my opinion. It takes a lot less of the actual capital of the market cap to raise the actual floor because this is about liquidity. This is about the volume available to purchase. And we're potentially talking about 
that amount, that kind of magnitude in capital, seeing Bitcoin as a real a potential alternative in the coming years. It is going to pop the, bu the bubble of financialization. It is the great de-financialization, and it is going to be epic. Uh, so, as I've said a million times, get your seatbelt buckled because it's going to be absolutely crazy. Um, and we're going to talk about it. We're going to cover it. We're going to read all about it right here on Bitcoin Audible. I thank you before we close this out to our wonderful sponsors, the Hexa Mobile Wallet. I'm so excited to see them coming out of beta. Uh, a huge congrats to those guys. Uh, I hope it's very soon. Um, and then the Bitbox O2 hardware wallet from Shift Crypto. Um, I swear by this thing. I've been, I, I've not a day goes by that I've not been happy with my decision to start using that thing a lot. Um, and, uh, and then lastly, Level.co, which is not in North Carolina. So I hate to say I can't uh, use them yet, but I'm going to be so excited when I can get banking services in Bitcoin. And that is what Level.co is. And fingers crossed. Uh, they're going to be here in 2021. So check them out. Tell me about it and make me jealous. But thank you to all of those wonderful sponsors. You can get them all at or find them all at guyswan.com. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. Again, this is Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan. Uh, a Merry Christmas to everyone. It is Christmas Eve here. I don't know when you're listening to this. Um, and I've got so much more to come. I'm going to keep up with this. So don't forget to subscribe to Bitcoin Audible. Follow me on Twitter at The Crypto Economy. And until next time, guys, take it easy. This has been a 111 production and you were listening to Bitcoin Audible on the Crypto Economy Network.